uh, get up and preach the word to are people whose confidence is in the blood of Jesus and the finished work of Jesus. I think the song that we sung needs to hit home again, at least it did for me, that we, we need to pray that we do not ever lose the wonder and the, the glory that we might have felt on our first conversion of the, the fact that the cross is Jesus dead for us and that grace never ends all by the imputed righteousness of Christ. We are, we are saved. Can I get an amen on that? <clears throat> that will never change. That will be the sole grounds of our relationship with God into eternity is the finished work of Jesus. So you can turn with me now as we go to meet Jesus, see more of what has been happening in this story. Um, while you're turning there, another couple of details on those announcements. Is <clears throat> I heard, I felt the judgmental glare on the back of my head as Vic said, you will receive an email when you register for the men's <laughs> breakfast. I did say that. What I meant was this Wednesday, I'll be sending out an email to everybody uh, with the details that you need if you have registered. So if you have your email from the registry, you'll be receiving, uh, and it'll have what you need to bring, what will be going on the day, and all of that. I hear on pretty good authority that there will be a bagpiper. So uh, be there. Be there with your marching drums. Uh, or at least, you, yeah, so that'll be, that'll be good. Also, I just want to say there is a, uh, a Reformed Baptist church over in Ipswich who is holding a family conference that all Reformed Baptist church People, well, and everybody, but especially for Reformed Baptist churches, are invited to up on the Sunshine Coast on the 16th to 17th and 18th of July. So that's mid-July. There's going to be a weekend where they do that. Um, that's Berean Bible Church over in over in Ipswich. The, it, it, the conference continues to the to the Sunday, and they sort of do their church service there. Of course, I'm uninviting you to that Sunday because I want to see you here. But uh, but yeah, that Saturday is going to be time of good teaching and fellowship. So if you want to meet other Reformed Baptists and go and meet our uh, uh, meet meet some people, that's a church we have a good relationship with in the past. So you can obviously ask for more details if you're keen on that. But we do also have uh, a conference coming up at our church. Of course, who was there for last year's Stand Firm conference? <clears throat> All right, very good. Uh, it, it's a young adult-ish, but really everybody can come. Uh, a conference aimed at apologetics and cultural uh, uh, engagement, having a good Christian worldview around all things that pertain to the kingdom of God and life. And we're, we've got it again this year, a bit earlier. It's going to be in September 18th. You've got to mark it down in your calendar. We have, not going to tell you yet, uh, but we have an uh, international guest coming uh, who uh, formerly pastored this church. Won't tell you his name, but you might know. Uh, uh, annoying brother for some people in the room here today. And also, we got a, a, a bigger name, if you can imagine that, a bigger name who has actually agreed to do a webcast, live stream, Q&A, and a couple of sessions for us. So uh, when it, uh, I'll, I'll be telling more details as, uh, as, the, we, 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 as I want to, but I want to keep you in suspense. So until then, just know, big name. It's going to be exciting if you love apologetics and Reformed Baptists. So we are in Mark chapter 6 as we continue on our series uh, through the book of Mark that tells us the very exciting, fast-paced, uh, uh, action-filled story of Jesus' life on earth. I've said before, I stole it from a commentary, but the book of Mark is like a little study companion for the book of Acts. It's, uh, it's, it's not all the details of everything Jesus spoke on and all the, all the big sermons. He doesn't, he's sort of short. It, it's, the, it's the spark notes of what happened in Jesus' life to just give us the action-packed uh, high points of everything that happened. And last week, well, over the last few weeks, what we've seen <coughs> is that Jesus sent the, the 12 apostles out, having given them his very own authority as his apostles. That's what being an apostle means. You have the authority of the one who sent you. 
He sent them out and they did their own miracles and preaching and casting out demons and healings. And they came back after a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, and they met with Jesus again. And he wanted to give them rest and recovery and replenishment. And so they got on a boat and they crossed the Sea of Galilee. Uh, One of the central parts of Jesus' ministry was all around the Sea of Galilee. And so they, they passed over it. And when they got to the uh, sort of another part, another landmass, the people, the crowds had again gathered to hear them and be healed and push up against them. And so Jesus, having compassion on them as their shepherd, he, he preaches to them the kingdom of God, how to escape the wrath that is to come, how to be saved and to know God as covenant God and savior. Uh, and, and, he taught, and he also healed many of their sick. And then as, as the day got late and we're all familiar with this parable, uh, this, this miracle, even if you weren't here last week. He fed the 5,000 men with all the women and children besides, so up to about 22,000, 30,000 people, half of Suncorp Stadium, gathered in front of him, and he fed them with two fish, two little tuna bits, and five little dinner rolls. He multiplied by the omnipotent power that he has as God incarnate. He prayed over it and just fed everybody. And afterwards, 12 baskets of leftovers were gathered up from everywhere the people were sitting. This was a, the only miracle that's uh, in every gospel account other than the resurrection. It was a huge moment in Jesus' ministry. It was a, a huge moment as we develop our theology and understanding of Jesus, that he is the one able to create out of nothing as only God can. And the shepherd who loves and feeds his sheep. And this week, we come to the following verses where we read that Jesus walks on the water. Can you read with me in chapter 6, verse 45? (coughs) Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. May God bless the reading of his inerrant, precious, authoritative word among us this morning. The last few weeks, of course, we've we've, we've sort of recaptured, but last week what we realized was after Jesus had fed the 5,000, The people were absolutely amazed. They were enthralled by this economic boost that they were about to have in their nation. As they they cried out in amazement, this is the prophet that Moses prophesied about. This is the one come to help us as a nation. And Jesus could understand that in their hearts they wanted to make him king. They wanted to get this king who could never have to farm, never has to uh, have a break in the economy when famine comes, this ultimate financial king, let's put him on the throne and he can rule over us. And perceiving that, what we realize also is that the disciples weren't entirely distinct from that mindset. They were getting caught up in in this sort of thinking that Jesus was going to be their food-multiplying king. 
And Jesus, therefore, sends them away, breaks up the crowd and, and uh, needs to address them. But we, we, as we covered last week, the, the point of that miracle was that the people who ate the bread were supposed to think this is God who meets our needs and who can give eternal life. This is God come into the world to save us. And therefore, Jesus preaches in John chapter 6 a sermon the next day about the fact he's the bread of life. If you ate the bread yesterday, that's nothing. You're hungry again today. But if you eat my flesh, symbolism of believing fully in me and my finished work of salvation for you, believe everything that I say, take that as your sole bread, you'll never be hungry again. You'll be satisfied and fulfilled eternally. But the people on that day, did not understand. They walked away. The whole 20,000 crowd just walked off, said, we don't want to listen to this. We can't bear what he's saying. And Jesus, of course, turned to the 12 disciples and said, what about you? You're going to go too? Feel welcome. Doors open. I'm not holding you back. Leave if you're just here for the money and the food and the, and the provisions. And they said that day, through, Peter was the spokesman. They said, as we covered last week, where else will we go? Of course, there's easier places to be, there's nicer people to follow, there's other you know, sorts of paths of life that we don't keep on getting caught in storms. What is it with these poor disciples? Every time they're in a boat, they're, they're near death. Jesus just loves throwing them in it. Anyway, here they are, they go, we could go other places, but Jesus, you alone have the words of eternal life. Maybe you've often wondered, what was it that, that was in their mind and in their soul that they knew that, they got that? And everybody else didn't. And of course, we could just easily say, well, you know, God's sovereign. They were the elect. They were chosen. The Holy Spirit came down into their hearts and secured it for them and, and told them. And while that's true, this story that we're about to read is the means by which God secures their heart so that they do not walk away with the rest. This story, what they're about to see is so significant that it confirms to them what they should have learned with the bread, but verse 52 tells us they had no clue. Their hearts were hardened. They, they, they didn't understand the whole, uh, the whole issue, the whole solution, the whole point, and so they were confused even more. They misunderstood, and in that sense, the hearts were hardened against the truth. But today's experience is going to break their hearts, open up their understanding for what is true, so that at tomorrow's sermon, they will believe and not walk away. So look with me over here. He's very caring Jesus over his under shepherds, these men that he has sent out for months of work. They came back, didn't eat. They were hungry all day. He fed them with the crowd and then they're still not able to get their rest. So he sends them away lovingly. Look at verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. An implicit promise, I'll come with you soon. Just go ahead I'm going to deal with the crowd. How merciful. He doesn't make them then attend to the 30,000 uh, uh, crazed, excited people. He very patiently and lovingly sends them away on the boat, and then he dismisses the crowd. It's probably about 5 p.m. at this point. The, night has got, the day has gotten on. It's, the sun is going down, and Jesus sends these people back to their homes, and of course he goes. <clears throat> Finally, these men are going to get a rest. And of course, on, on each of their hips is a basket full of miracle bread. So now they're going to eat. Now they're finally going to go sit by the shore, shoreside, have some tucker, jump into the boat and cruise on through the night in a beautiful, open-aired, 
relaxing, massaging time to the other side where Jesus will then meet them and finally give them all the rest that they are after. That's what happens, right? He sends them away. He sends the the disciples off. And Jesus, it says here in verse, verse 47, when the evening came, the boat was out on the sea and Jesus was alone on the land. These men have probably gone through so much, they really don't like being apart from Jesus. And let's just say again, especially out on this damned sea, this lake that so often is the, is the cause of their distress and their fear. They don't like being away from Jesus. But then we can take a, a bit of a note here. that We can see a pattern of how Jesus leads us and teaches us and trains us in life. That faith often requires that we obey when we do not fully understand. That Jesus will tell them, go away. I'm not going to explain everything to you. I'm not going to give you all the details. I'm the Lord. You are the servant. But trust me, go out on this fearful lake. I will be with you. And it says that they were alone on the sea and he was alone on the land. They were not together. Here in this moment, they had to exercise faith that just as Jesus had been with them while they were on their ministry, Jesus is with them while they are in the middle of a fearful lake. John Calvin writes that that faith includes two things. The the faith that that we live in, in our ongoing life, not, not just saving faith at the beginning by which we receive the finished work of Jesus, but ongoing faith for the Christian in life requires two things. Firstly, that you obey, as we just said, as you, that you obey beyond and above your desires. Even when these disciples, they wanted to be with Jesus, they probably wanted a nice midnight supper, miracle bread from Jesus again, maybe something on top this time. They wanted to be with Jesus. They didn't want to go out on the, sto- on the, on the lake that was subject to storms without Jesus, and yet faith obeys even beyond what we want to do. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've been at those forks in the road or you're in the middle of the result of one of those two decisions, maybe even right now, you you came to a a point in your life and you go, I know what I want to do, I know what I would love to do, and I know what Jesus commands me to do, and they are not the same thing. Maybe right now you you took the path of your desire and you are reaping the the ill benefits of that. The, 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 The bad decision comes with bad consequences. Or maybe you're down the other side and you, 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 you understand you're alone on a lake, there's difficulty, there's trials all around you, but your faith that, that obey Jesus Christ in the difficulty is sustaining you. You're aware, if I'm here, I'm with Christ. That is the faith that we need, that obeys beyond and above our desires. But also, and I think this is what empowers our faith, Calvin says, we also need in our faith a trust that this command into what I don't understand is a part of an overarching plan that my sovereign God has. That's what enables you as as you get to one point and you can't see far beyond the horizon and you're not sure what goes goes on beyond the mist and, and yet Jesus is calling you that way. Faith obeys beyond your desire because it knows this is a part of a bigger plan. Jesus has a wiser plan for my life. He loves me more than I love me. Holiness is more important than comfort. And if I step out here, though I will be maybe alone at, other, at some times, though I will be struggling and things will be difficult, Jesus has an ultimate plan. And that is what the disciples come to realize in about 12 hours from now. 
Jesus, our sovereign God, sitting on the throne, has a plan for our lives that brings him ultimate glory. And when we trust that, we know that, we are willing to submit our lives and joyfully bend our knees to his commands. And then we see in verse 48 that this obedience of theirs had a cost. It says in verse 48, he saw them, Jesus saw them, that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. So, so these men were in the boat and they had started out. Maybe sails were down because the wind was good and they only had a short way to go. Maybe even they were able to go along the shore. But with the wind against them, they weren't able to use the sails. That would push them in the opposite direction. They had to whip out the oars and they were rowing. This is what the other Gospels tell us. That they were tormented. They were, they were extremely tired and fatigued in the evening as they're rowing because the wind is against them and there is a great storm. We talked about all the, the, the natural parts of the Sea of Galilee that make it so tempestuous and so horrible to be on when the storms come. It's just a, 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 it's like a, a huge bowl and when the wind comes in, it just whips it into a frenzy. Well, here they were. They were rowing and it, it was about <clears throat> six to nine hours of struggling. If they had left at about 6 p.m. at evening time, The next verse tells us that at about the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 and 6 a.m., they were struggling all night, taking shifts on the oars, fearful for their death, fatigued and weary were these men in the storm. They were getting clobbered. Then we see Jesus, if we backtrack just a little bit. The crowds were sent away, the disciples were out onto the sea and being attacked by this storm. Verse 46 tells us why. Jesus sent them away and sent the disciples to the storm. After he had taken leave from them, verse 46 says, he went up on the mountain to pray. This shows us that that he's so human, isn't he? Why does the eternal son of God need to have a devotional time? Why does he need to pray? As we asked a few weeks ago, why does he need to rest and eat and sleep? What's that about? He's human, remember. He is in human nature, really receiving not just physical fatigue, but spiritual fatigue. And as our perfect human example, he is showing to us that we, no matter how mature we have become, no matter how great an event has just happened in our life, what sustains us and directs us is is intimate communion with the Father in prayer. It's a great example for us to be in prayer to the Lord frequently and for lengthy periods whenever we are able. So here's Jesus praying on the mountain, the men struggling in the storm, and all of the thousands have gone back to their homes. You're going to see now that in the midst of this storm, Jesus gives, or Mark gives, in his telling of the story, words that he uses and pictures that he shows, three pictures or imageries out of the Old Testament that Jesus is the divine God in the flesh. Let's see what happens here. It says there in verse 48, the next line, and about the fourth watch of the night, again, between 3 and 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. So remember, miracle in itself, Jesus is up on a mountain, and in the pitch black, and in a stormy night, with clouds everywhere, and waves being tossed about, he sees his brothers, the disciples, out on the lake in the boat. He sees them with a divine sight. Anyway, and so about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on 
the sea. That's phrase number one, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. That's phrase number two that we'll look at. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought he was a ghost and cried out, for they were, all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. It's the third phrase we're going to look at. So number one, we see back here in, uh, 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 in verse 48, it says that he came to them walking on the sea. In ancient Near East and many of the religions of the day, uh, the, the ocean, the seas, were, this, were very symbolic, but also really in their minds, not just a symbol, but really and truly the dwelling places of the gods. You know, maybe it's Poseidon that some had believed in or, or Thor striking his hammer, sending down those lightning bolts, whipping up the sea. They, they all had their theories about this, but to the Jews who knew there was only one true God, they still believed that there was, there was dark and evil demonic forces that set themselves up as gods who resided in the sea. They often had beliefs or views about, about um, uh, the, the ocean's uh, tempests and the storms being because a demon is arriving or a dark spiritual force is, is coming to make war. They, they had all these, these horrible uh, uh, views of the ocean. The sea, it, it, it symbolized chaos. It's completely uncontrollable completely unpredictable. This is why Revelation tells us in this poetic language that in heaven, sorry surfers, there will be no ocean. Not because the ocean's evil or created by Satan. Maybe there even is going to be large bodies of water in, ocean, in, in heaven, but, but the point is that there will be no chaos, no ongoing mysterious enemy beyond your reach and power. But this is what it was to the people of the day. In Daniel chapter 7, he gives this, this prophetic picture of, of these horrible beasts coming up out of the sea with all these horrible heads doing horrible things to those on the land who are the people of God. And, and so this is sort of symbolic of how they viewed it. The evil comes from the sea. Storms are symbolic of evil. <clears throat> this probably also explains why when they saw somebody on the ocean... Their assumption was there's a demon, which is the word for ghost. It could also have been used for satanic appearance. So they, they're coming to this conclusion because what happened just a couple of chapters ago when, when Jesus went over to the other area of the Gerasenes and he met those, that, that, that lesion of demons in that man at the, at the uh, cemetery. He cast them out. They went into the pigs. The pigs ran into the Sea of Galilee and drowned. Where are those demons now? They're in the ocean. They're in the middle of the storm. They're remembering this event, and there they look. Some of them, all of them, are coming for them. Maybe that's what was going through their mind, but not least to say they were superstitious, and therefore they were fearful. But the Old Testament gives us, through poetic language, the picture. It, it utilizes these, these, these beliefs of the old world. It utilizes what people believed about the ocean, to assert the sovereignty and power of Yahweh, the Jews' God, the one true living God who does not lose any of his power, any of his sovereignty or reign because it's in the ocean, because he's standing in the ocean. In Psalm 89, it says, The Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord. So, so the, the point here is that you are the only one who fits the following description. Who is like you? Absolutely nobody. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, 
you still them. The point is that anyone who can do that is the God of the universe. Or Job chapter 9 verse 8 even more directly says, speaking of God, he says, God who alone stretched out the heavens. Who made the universe? Only God. And tramples the waves of the sea. Only God does that. Only God in Scripture is pictured as the one powerful, fearless, sovereign enough to go walking around the little and have his ankles licked by the little puddles of the Mediterranean Ocean. That's the God of Scripture. Fearless, powerful, sovereign. And so I was thinking about this in the, the last few weeks as I'm thinking about that. Was Jesus walking? Uh, uh, because there's, all, there's, there's stupid theories. People say, well, was there, there was a sandbar. Jesus was sort of just tiptoeing in the shallows of a sandbar. I don't know how he got out to there. I don't know why the, the, the fishermen who know this lake, like the back of their hand, don't know that there's a sandbar there. I don't know why people think that there would be a shallow sandbar in the midst of a tempestuous storm. I don't think they've thought this through. But anyway, there's all sorts of silly theories. Some people say that they're actually closer to the land than they realized, and he was just walking on the, on the land. Also silly. But, but I was thinking about it. No, no, he was walking on top of the sea is what the Greek says, which makes you... It makes it just a little bit funny to think about. If the waves and the swells are coming, Jesus is sort of running up hills and, and having to... Do I mean, he, was he walking sideways as the swells came around? It, it makes quite a funny picture, and you have to sort of think about what, what he was really doing because he's in a storm. There was swells. I think Job 9 verse 8 gives us the answer. But he tramples the waves. Like we sung just now about the, the, the song of Moses. He splits those waves. I think he was walking on the water and as waves came to him, they bowed and split before him so that he had a clear path to walk wherever he wanted. He wasn't running from them, tiptoeing around the crashing waves. They were dodging him. And he walked and they saw him and of course were afraid. So in this picture, walking on the sea, we see a direct Jewish understanding. This man is God trampling these waves like they're nothing. And secondly, it says there that he meant to pass them by or pass by them or pass before them, maybe your translation says, which we can so easily miss if we're not paying attention. But this is a, a phrase used a couple of times in the Old Testament. Of course, we can think of Exodus chapter 33 when Moses is up on the mountain, he's alone with God, and he says to him, please, God, Yahweh, show me your glory. I've seen your works, I hear your words, but please show me the light. Give me your glory. And of course, the answer is that no, no man can see God and live. You, you unzip that tent, you're being blasted to smithereens. And so God puts him in a crack in the rock, the cleft of the rock, and he says, my goodness shall pass before you. He says, what's going to happen? He says, as my glory passes by you, you shall see only the back parts of me. And even that was enough to make Moses' face shine for weeks. Anyway, then R.C. Sproul points out that there's also this other, other uh, event in 1 Kings chapter 19 when Elijah the prophet 
was, was uh, thinking that he was the only elect one saved person in all of Israel. He butchers and slashes to pieces all of the prophets to the false god, and then he just runs away from this queen Jezebel who wants his head on a platter. He runs away. He's in the desert. God takes him up to the top of a mountain, and it says that the Lord passed by him. And there was an earthquake, and there was a wind, and there was a storm, and there was a fiery tempest, and God was there passing by and speaking to him. This is the picture that, that God's glory as a covenantal reminder that he is with us, he loves us, he is here to manifest his power for salvation was the picture in each of those occurrences. So now again, Jesus, I, I think the initial intent was that, that Jesus manifesting the glory of God was going to pass by them. And there was the option, of course, that if they were to call to him to, to come in, he, he, would, he would come, of course, as God did for Moses and, and God did for Elijah. But, but because we read it and it sounds confusing, like did he not even plan to see them? He was sort of just having a Sabbath. I'm not going to see the disciples today. I'm going to go past them. Dang, they saw me. Is that what it was? No, I think that he was planning to manifest the glory of God in the storm. Even, if I can add one more picture, in the Holy of Holies of the temple of the Old Testament, one of the things that they did to hide themselves from the presence of God was light all the incense, fill the room with smoke so that they could come in, spread the blood on the altar, and leave without seeing the manifestation of God. And here they are in this misty, stormy, cloudy room, God passing by them in glory in the person of Jesus, and they are able to look on him. Unlike Moses, who is hidden in the cleft of the rock, like Elijah, who, who had to be hidden in the cave, Jesus can come to them. He is God's glory in flesh so that we can know him, believe him, see him, and receive him. So here it is, Mark telling us, this glory of God meant to pass by them. Verse 50 says, They saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Or in the Greek, the, the word behind there is ego imi, which just, it's an emphatic way to say, it is I, me, or it's me, I. It, it, it's doubling up on the, on the personal pronoun. And so this, though, as I translated when we first read, is the exact same Greek words that is used from Exodus 3 when God speaks his name to Moses. When Moses says, what's your name? Who do I say has sent me? And God says, I am who I am. Or more literally, I am. That, that, that God has no dependencies. God has no contingencies. God's not I am if you believe, or I'm the one who relies on anything. His ultimate reality, who has being and source of sustenance in himself. He says, I am. And this is what Jesus says frequently throughout his ministry. I am the bread of life. I am the water of eternal life. And here on the storm, he stands in front of his disciples and says, take heart, I am. He claims for himself the divine covenantal name to his people. There is no way that we can read this and wiggle around it. He is declaring himself as God in the midst of the storm. What is, what of course is interesting is the effects that come from all of this. We've seen what happened. We see these three pictures of Christ's divinity. 
We also see the effects that it had. I first just want to look at what exactly he said to his, believe, his, uh, his gentleman there as we, as we come to some concluding remarks. He says, take heart, it is I, or I am. Do not be afraid. Which is paradoxical, maybe even confusing. Because when God reveals himself to mankind, it is fearful. It is, uh, that's why he has to say it. Don't be afraid. I'm not just some petty ghost. I'm not some storm that's going to kill you. I'm the one who has your soul and your salvation in my hands. But take heart. This very same phrase, I am, is spoken by Jesus in the context of his enemies. Look at, the, look at the two ways that it's received or the different effects that it has when Jesus speaks these words. To his disciples, in the midst of a storm, they're about to die. He says, I am, and the effect is taking heart and not being afraid. But in John chapter 18, when his enemies come to him to try and arrest him in the dark of a peaceful, still night, and, and they have no reason to be afraid. They've got all of their army with them, a whole garrison of men right there in the garden, no storm, all good. They say, which one of you is Jesus? He stands up and says, I am. And they all fall down on their backs flat. A whole crowd of men, spears, swords, and shields in hand, fall down at the declaration of his name. The message there was, be afraid. Lose heart. You are about to do what cannot be undone and seal your fate against your worst enemy, Yahweh. They got back up. They arrested him, and as a lamb submitted to slaughter, he went with them. But he sent the message right then and there, didn't he? I'm going because I want to. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I'm using you. You're not using me. But when he speaks, and, and I want to ask you where you are today, are you someone who is an enemy of Christ, who maybe you don't even like that language, maybe you're just someone who hasn't believed in Jesus for salvation yet, but Scripture tells us, the relationship that you have with God is in fact enmity. The, the laws of God that he makes, you hate. The, the commands that he gives to you, you despise and disobey. The Jesus that manifested the glory of God, this son of God, our savior, is in fact hated by you. Were you to meet him, we all like to think, I wouldn't have been one of those who crucified him. Probably would have been disinterested with him, right? If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, whose life is is symbolized by repentance of sin, trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. You are an enemy of Jesus, and he's a terrible enemy to have. He is I am, who tramples on the storms and gives perfect, everlasting justice to enemies of his, who remain in their sin and die and will go to hell forever. Or are you someone who has received Jesus as your savior, so that even in the midst of a to, to horrible, horrible storm that is rising up against you in your life, you can hear the words that Jesus is, I am. He is Yahweh. He is God who judges. And you can have with confidence, that's okay. I have your own righteousness, Jesus. You're the one who has made me righteous. You're the one who has saved me. I don't need to be afraid of the judge, for he has become my savior. This is the confidence that everyone who has believed on Christ can have. Take Heart, do not be afraid, even if death, bankruptcy, divorce, be, be, being made a widow, whatever it is, God in Christ is with you. Take heart, Christian. 
And then also we can see here that we can take heart as Christians, that the reason we can take heart is because Jesus, like we saw this picture of at the beginning of the passage, Jesus is alone with the Father praying for us. Back up in, in verse 46, we saw that after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And it's good that he did. Because he went and prayed is the reason that God answering his prayer to open the disciples' minds, to open the disciples' hearts for truth, that is why they came to believe the very next day. And that's why this miracle did not harden their hearts even further like the bread did, but broke their hearts and melted them as they came to see who Jesus was. So for believers today, the reason that you believe, the reason you have made it through as many trials and struggles and storms in your life as you have, as you look back and think, I, how am I still a Christian? It's a miracle every day that I wake up and I still believe in Jesus. The reason your flesh has not condemned you yet, the reason that your foolishness has not made you lost, the reason your decisions have not earned for you the justice of God and being cut out of his family is because Jesus is with the Father praying for you right now. This is what we call the intercession of Christ. Interceding is when somebody on your behalf goes and pleads with another party to give you mercy, to do something for your good. Because this is what is happening between Father and Son. Not that the Father is against us. He sent Jesus. It's not that he's against us. He's the one who lovingly, joyfully hears the prayers of Christ. But, But yet there is this relationship. Jesus Christ, our high priest, prays for us. The Father, God, hears and answers with joy, opening our hearts, giving us the Holy Spirit, sustaining us and persevering us. Isaiah 53, which is that great chapter which prophesies the work of Jesus in atonement to bring us forgiveness, ends with the work of Jesus in intercession to preserve us. Isaiah 53 verse 12 says, Yet he bore the sins of many, And he makes intercession for the transgressors. So maybe like the disciples on the boat, you're very acutely aware. He is not physically here with us anymore. He has taken leave of us, as verse 46 says. He's up in heaven. He doesn't know what it's like down here anymore. He's not with us. He is praying for us, making intercession for transgressors. Are you a sinner? You got some law of God that you've broken, you've got a conscience that that tells you, stabs you, that knows you're a sinner, you're evil, you're not perfect. It's evidence that you are on your way to hell. Or if you're a Christian, it's just evidence that you've still got some sin still in your flesh. But if you're a transgressor, then you have a high priest in heaven who prays for transgressors. And you can be certain that your salvation is secure because the writer of the Hebrews applies it again and says, because Jesus has an indestructible life, because he can't die, because he's everlasting there in heaven with the Father. It says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He can save us through the wildest of storms, He can save us against the strongest of enemies. He can save you through the the most 
most tempting sins. He can save you through whatever will come, whatever enemies against you from outside or within. He can save you because he's living, making intercession for you, and he will never need to sleep. He will never need to take a break. He does never die. He ever lives in that office to pray for you. He will never appear physically for us again to manifest his glory in our life. That's not what we're hoping for. He'll come at the end of the ages. We don't need him to appear beside us as we pray, come into church to remind us that he's here. We have his resident Holy Spirit, which is now his presence. We have the confidence that he's working, that he is working to save his elect and that he is preserving us. I want to ask again, if you're an unbeliever, you're not a Christian yet, or you despise the God of the Bible, wherever you want to put yourself, call yourself what you want. The Bible just calls you, as it calls all Christians, sinners. The difference is that if you're not in Christ, you still have your sin in your account and you must pay for it upon death. I want to ask you, did, you're kind of like the disciples or the crowd that, that, that you've seen, maybe miracles, you've heard a lot of stuff, whatever. You're alive, that's a miracle in itself. <clears throat> and yet, all the evidence that should be pointing to believing in Christ, all of that still just leaves your heart hardened, like the disciples. Have hope this morning. <laughs> Those with hard hearts can be saved by the working of God in your heart. And yet, what happened that, that turned them from thinking, or, or maybe you this morning, you, you might think of Jesus as, yeah, yeah, significant guy. I know, I know he exists. Really cool dude, had some great teachings. Uh, other ones I don't really agree with anymore. Uh, look, he was, a, he was a significant religious figure. I'll give him that. Maybe even you're going to say he was, he was a prophet and other religions learned from him as well. That's fine. Maybe you're on sort of the disciple side in the midst of the storm. You know, I think he's some kind of demonic apparition. Or you just think he's a lunatic, a liar, man that can be forgotten in history. Whatever your view of Jesus Christ, you need a manifestation of his glory and a declaration of his divinity so that then you can believe and be saved. And I'm not going to put on any offer of some enormous miracle before your eyes to convince you. Jesus says that wouldn't even convince you. You've seen enough. It's the evidence that you're not listening to. What we read in the New Testament is that what in the Old Testament was a bright shining fire as the glory of God. And in the ministry of Jesus was him himself was the glory of God. Now that he's back in heaven, the glory of God is manifested by the preached word of God. So that this seems pretty ordinary and very unglorious. And yet, right with us today here is the Holy Spirit manifesting and declaring and convincing that Jesus is God. The one you're sinning against is God. The one you've been denying is God. Maybe the one that you've been raised in a Christian home and heard about and sung about and learned lots of things about. He is not just a topic. He is God. He's a man who came. He is God who became man and taking your sin upon himself died under the wrath of God so that you can go free. There is no sense. There is no reason. There is no need to hold on to your sin any longer. Jesus has died so that you can be free. We, we were like those in the storm of sin and death with impending doom and hell to come. And Jesus willingly voluntarily came into that experience of sin and death and hell and tramples it under feet, under his feet, so that now we can sing what we just sung in beautiful chorus. Sin and death have been destroyed. 
For those in Christ, for those who are in him, for you, the grave has been blown apart. For you, sin has been destroyed and your guilt has been taken. And that can be true of anyone that today will give their sin to Christ and come to him and bend your knee. That's the call of Mark through this gospel chapter. I want to invite you that if after the service you, you want to give your life to Christ, you want to pray or just ask questions, come down the front. I'm going to be here. I want to talk to you. Find Vic. He'll, he wants to sit and pray with you. But, but do that. Don't let this boat experience, this Mark chapter 6 moment of realizing the divinity of Christ pass away and yet again have your hearts hardened. Let's pray. (coughs) Jesus, we are weak and frail humans. Whether we're saved or we're not, we are are at the, the whim of a wind. Water can just crush us and kill us. We can... We can die from internal health struggles in a moment, yet you are that one who is unchangeable, immortal, eternal, and you became one of us, Jesus. I thank you that there is good news to be proclaimed for sinners today, that though they have a lifetime of sinning against you and and a conscience that tells them they are guilty, there is no death, no blood, no, no sacrifice that can atone for them. Let them know that the one who came in omnipotent divine power is the one who died. And as surely as you, you made the heavens and you trampled the sea, you also alone can declare forgiveness and justification of sinners. I pray, God, that you would bring people to believe in him. Would you bring them into our family of Christians and would you glorify Jesus Christ as being not just the one who tramples the sea, not just the one who rose from the grave, but the one who saves many, many sinners. Lord, those of us who know you already, make us zealous for preaching your gospel and declaring the good news that you're Lord, declaring the good news that you died and have risen and are saving all those who come to you. Pray, God, that you would secure us of those who are in storms and we struggle and we are afflicted and tempted and trialed and our faith seems to be as shaky as the disciples. Confirm us in our hearts this morning, Lord, that you are God, that you pray for us and that we are safe in your hands. We pray all of this in the glorious name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, who died and rose for us. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.